Well, good morning, uh, everybody. It's so good to be with you. Everybody seems uh, in the room survived the snowpocalypse of 2021, uh, and it's so good to be able to be together. Uh, if you're at home uh, online with us, we're glad to be able to join you as well. If you're a first-time guest, either there or here, we would love to get to know you a little bit better. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we had a whole team that is here ready to serve you and help you find your path along the way, answer any questions you may have, pray with you about any matter. Uh, if you are new, please stop by the Welcome Center out there, pick up a free gift, let them know you're here. They would love to say hi and help you out uh, in that regard. And if you're online, uh, you can drop a message in the chat uh, and our host will be there and they'll follow up with you. Or you can follow, uh, fill out an online connection card at journeyjonesworld.com connect. Uh, and you can have a number of choices there of how uh, you can uh, alert us to any needs you may have, or uh, we can help you find any information that you may need. We're going to be in the book of Luke today in the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, verses one through nine. Uh, so if if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn there. If not, I always say don't worry about it. We put the scripture up on the screen so you can track along with us. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one, uh, and it would be our pleasure to give you that as a gift. They, they have those out at the Welcome Center. We would love for you to walk away with here. If you don't have a copy uh, of scripture uh, for your own, we would love to be the ones to be able to give you that. Uh, so definitely pick that up uh, free of charge before you head out uh, today uh, in that. As you're turning there, I want to get you up to date on a few things while we're together and online. Uh, first thing is, uh, with the, the snow kind of messed us up this past week a little bit, we were going to have a day of prayer up here on Wednesday. Uh, we rescheduled that as part of our, our month-long focus on Saturate, which is a, a community-wide movement of prayer between us and other churches in Jonesboro. We're praying over the entire city of Jonesboro, every household in Jonesboro, uh, and doing that together. Uh, this Saturday, not, excuse me, Saturday, this Wednesday, we have rescheduled that. Uh, and so we would love to invite you uh, for a day of prayer. Uh, we're going to have stations set up, about nine stations where you can walk through. It'll probably take you uh, as much time as you want or as little time as you want. You don't have to hit every station. There'll be nine of them. Uh, some of them will take just a couple of minutes. Some of them may take a little bit longer, but we want to uh, bathe that day in prayer just as a way to uh, kind of finish up and put an exclamation mark uh, on all that we've been doing together separately. We want to come together that day and do that. So the, the building will be open at eight o'clock, uh, and that will lead us up to uh, our night of uh, worship, okay? So at night, uh, we're having a big night of worship. We're bringing everybody together. We want to invite you to come out. Uh, I'm so appreciative of Rachel, our minister of worship, uh, and our worship team for putting this together. And so we're going to be doing that together this Wednesday night. Students, college, everybody, you can invite friends uh, and family. Uh, we're going to be able to have enough room in here where we can have some overflow uh, space if we need uh, to be able to give everybody the social distance uh, protocols that we need and all that kind of stuff. We want to invite you uh, to be here here together to set for us to really pursue God together uh, as we finish up a month-long focus on prayer and fasting. I hope that's been a blessing to you uh, as we finish up. Don't forget to send out those cards if you've been praying for those households this week. Uh, and if you've got questions about how to do that, definitely contact us at info at journeyjonesworld.com and we'll help you figure all that out. And then the last thing before we dive into the passage today uh, is we have a Vision Sunday uh, coming up on March 7th. Uh, and what we we're trying to do is drop in a few Vision Sundays, not just one big one, but we're hitting different elements of our vision. And so on March 7th, we're going to be doing that. And this is going to be focused on our vision for families uh, and children. And so we would love for you to take part in that uh, by bringing families with you uh, to hear uh, the vision for what we want to do and partnering with families to fuel faith in the next generation. And then coupled with that is our uh, yearly parent commissioning. Uh, you may know it as baby dedication. We kind of uh, wrap that all around this parent commissioning. And so we have three spots left at the 1045 service, if you have a little one and you have not yet dedicated your child or been a part of our parent commissioning and you would like to do that, uh, then go to our website, uh, the main page, scroll down to the bottom. There's a link there that you can register and hit up one of those last three spots at 1045. And Crystal and our Journey Kids team will follow up with you and get you everything you need to know to get uh, in line for March uh, 7th, okay? So I know that's a lot of information, but while we got everybody here together, I uh, just want to make sure everybody is on, uh, on the know on all the things that are going on. We've been in the middle of a series uh, that has been a, a part of this month-long focus on prayer and fasting called Saturate. 
And what we've been doing, really, is we've been pursuing God together through his word. And we're asking him to not just help us to begin again, which is where we started the year, but also help us to become something together. Uh, God has always been about forming not just individuals, but he's been about forming a people and community. Uh, and, and what defines us as a community is really what we're looking at. Who do we want to be? What kind of church do we want to be? What is God uh, forming us into? Uh, and what that means for us is simply this, is that we want to have an authentic expression of the gospel. The word gospel is thrown around a lot these days, uh, but what we mean by that is the good news of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the greatest figure that has ever lived. We believe that he is God in the flesh, and we believe that he has come to reveal who God is to us so that we can have a relationship, an eternal relationship with God. But the problem with that oftentimes is sometimes when we hear the word gospel in our context, uh, there, there are some misconceptions about what the gospel is. Uh, I think we've got some problems uh, in our society today. One of those is we get settled for what I call a truncated gospel. It's a, it's a gospel that's reduced down to simply saying a prayer, kind of punching a ticket. Uh, Dallas Willards famously calls it the barcode faith, where you just kind of get the barcode and you get scanned and then you get to go to heaven. Uh, it's a reduced down, kind of a watered down gospel that just basically means punching uh, your ticket, getting out of hell, getting into heaven. Uh, and, and we hear a lot of that. Uh, and uh, we embrace forgiveness. We embrace the atonement of Jesus and the justification. And we know that while the gospel is not less than forgiveness, it is so much more than that. But so many times it seems that uh, in our context, we settle for what I would call a truncated gospel, a reduced down, a watered down gospel. That's just about getting out of here and getting into there. The other thing that I also see is we see a conflated gospel. What I mean by that is that the word conflate means to uh, take two things and merge them together. And the problem with the gospel is, is that when we do that with the gospel, when we add things to the gospel, we begin to water down the gospel itself. And we see that in a number of different ways. We see that in political movements uh, today. I, I think even back to uh, the insurrection just a few weeks ago on the Capitol, there were so many uh, uh, people that were involved in that were, were seen in the house chamber praying together and thanking God for the opportunity opportunity. They merged Christianity with this brand of nationalism, and they begin to conflate it. And when you do that, you begin to reduce it and lose the essence of what the gospel is. And that can happen with Christian nationalism. That can happen with progressive movements. It's something when anytime we bring another agenda to the gospel, we begin to conflate it, and we begin to reduce the gospel. The other thing that we see is not just a truncated gospel or a conflated gospel, but what we also see is just a cultural gospel. It, it, it's a gospel that just by default, you grew up in Jonesboro in the South. Uh, you had parents perhaps that were uh, somewhat religious or maybe they were uh, of a particular denominational bent. And so you just kind of adopted that. You just kind of walked into that. It's kind of the air you breathe. It has its own subculture language. Uh, you begin to associate yourself and you would call yourself a Christian. But when you really look at the manner of your life, the substance of your life, you would have to be honest and just say, well, I'm culturally a Christian. I have a cultural gospel. But what we're looking at today and have been looking at over the last couple of weeks as we head into March is what would it look like for us to return back, to come back to Jesus and Jesus alone? What would it look like for us to push away a truncated gospel, to deny a conflated gospel, and to stiff arm a cultural gospel, and instead allow ourselves to embrace the true gospel, the holistic gospel that Jesus in all his fullness embodies and represents. And so we've been looking at that and trying to embrace that around the passage in Luke chapter 10. And so that's what we're going to do today. And I want to show you, I want to kind of explain what I mean uh, as we go through this. And uh, I say this a lot around here. We're going to go to school at the beginning and we're going to learn a little bit of background. And hopefully we'll get to church at the end and see how God can actually make this real and relevant in our lives, in our present, in our church. And I firmly believe that God wants to do something to shape us, to wake us up and help us to turn 
turn away from truncated, turn away from conflated, and stiff arm the cultural gospel and instead embrace the reality of who he is. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at saturating us with your power. And what that means is that God is going to reintroduce us to a different kind of power. What it looks like to walk in the power of the Spirit, fueled by the truth of Jesus, in honor of the Father, so that we can actually become what Jesus wants us to become. He has always been about shaping his people, and that's exactly what he was doing in Luke chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of an overlap from what we did last week uh, and skip over a few things in here, but I want to back up to chapter 10, verse 1, to get us a running start so that we can understand what it was that Jesus was actually doing in shaping a people. This is how it begins. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place that he was about to go. Now, we did focus on this last week, and we focused on some different elements, but we're backing up to kind of begin to zero in on this 72. And, and anytime I see a number like this, I mean, these are unnamed people. We don't know exactly who they are. Uh, and so what it, it kind of triggers me to do is I want to say, well, who are these people? What was the significant? Why 72? Where, where did this come from? And in order to see this, this is really important for us because when we read Scripture around here, we're not just looking at a, a word here and a word there, not just a word-by-word word look at exactly what's going on. We have to back up and see the picture of what the author was trying to do. But then what we actually do is with Luke, for, in, for instance, in this situation, we're actually going to see where Luke is drawing this idea from. And in order to do that, we're going to have to back up because that helps us to understand what in, what in essence he's trying to communicate. Now, there's been a lot of uh, uh, opinions about uh, who these 72 were. Uh, some translations, you might have a translation that actually says the 70. Uh, some manuscripts actually have 70. Some have 72. And there's a lot of different significance in, Isra in, in Israel's history with the number 70 and 72. As a matter of fact, there was about 70 or 72 people that were members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, many people think this represents the nations of the world. There were 72 known uh, princes and nations at the time, and, and, and that kind of has a little bit of weight, a little validity historically. But if, if you want to figure out in Scripture where things come from, one of the best tricks you can uh, implement is you look for what's called the principle of first mention. What that means is where was, the, where was this idea first introduced? Where did it come from? Where did it start? And then if you can follow the path back to the source, then you can see why the weight and the significance of this number means something. And it's going to have a whole lot of meaning for us by the time we trace this back to why was there 72? Where did this come from? In order to see that, the best way you can do it is go back to the Old Testament. And you can look back into the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we see this number actually uh, come to the surface. This is in Numbers chapter 11. This was Moses leading the people of God uh, out of Israel, and uh, out of Egypt, into the Promised Land. And this is what it says. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he spoke with him. He's speaking to Moses. Moses was the leader that God had anointed and appointed to bring the people out of Egypt. But then he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him, on Moses, God did, and he put it on the 70 elders. And so this is a group of people that were uh, uh, chosen from among the people of God who were supposed to come and represent, and then they were supposed to actually begin to help Moses lead the people of God. And so you see a little bit of the Spirit that was taking uh, place on Moses, and it was taken off of him, and it was distributed among the 70. Now, we've got 70, but we're asking the question, okay, well, we've got 70 two uh, in Luke's gospel. So where's the other two? Well, when the Spirit rested on them, they did something very specifically. They began to prophesy, and they did not do so again. They actually began to speak the Word of God. Okay, and so now Moses wasn't the only one speaking for God. Now you have 70 others. But again, where are these other two people? Well, this is where we find them. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad uh, had remained in the camp, and they were listed among the elders, but they did not go to the tent. They were like those deacons that didn't show up to the meeting. That's what happened. Uh, they stayed home, all right, but they still got some of the Spirit. Yet the Spirit also rested on them. And what happened to them? Well, they prophesied 
where they were. So now they're speaking on behalf of God. A young man ran and told Moses, he's telling on the people that didn't show up, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And then it goes on to say the rest of the story, Joshua, son of Nun, pretty famous figure who had been with Moses uh, and his aide since you, spoke up. And this is what he says, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Tell them they missed the meeting. They can't have the spirit. They are not supposed to be prophesying. But this is what Moses said. Moses replies, are you so jealous? Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Now catch this. This is a really big deal. And this is going to lead us back to the gospel of Luke. What Moses was asking for, wishing for, hopeful for, was not that the spirit would reside in one man, one individual, not even that it would reside in 70 elders or 72 with the other guys that missed the meeting. He's saying, Moses is saying, my heart is that everyone would be filled with the spirit and everyone would have the ability to speak on behalf of the Lord, that everyone would be able to prophesy. Now that doesn't sound like much to us in 2021, but in that day, there weren't just prophets running around. There were a lot of false prophets running around. There's a lot of people claiming to speak for God. And I would say that's probably true today. There's probably still a lot of people that are uh, walking around, uh, have Twitter accounts or Instagram accounts or um, YouTube channels that are claiming to speak for God. There's people that are pastoring churches that are saying, well, I'm claiming to speak for God. There is false prophets out there. But what we're hearing here is that inside God's heart, on Moses' heart, was this desire that it wouldn't be restricted, the Spirit would not be restricted just a select few, but that many people, all people, would be able to enjoy the presence of God personally and be able to speak for God publicly. And that's what you see, all right? So you see this, and then if you follow and you move forward into Luke, all right, we went for the Old Testament, and now when we get to Luke, Luke is doing something very specific. He's doing something very specific because what he's about to do is he's about to fulfill even what Moses said. Not in a direct relation, I would say, to say, okay, well, I got to do what Moses asked for. But what we see is that this was on the heart and mind of God himself. And it begins when you get into the way that Luke begins to portray Jesus. If you get to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 4, this is when Jesus arrives on the scene. He actually preaches his first recorded sermon. He goes to the synagogue, and when he goes in the synagogue in Nazareth, everybody's listening to him, and he, he has a text for his uh, sermon, kind of like what we're doing here today. We're opening up scripture. Well, he had a scripture for his sermon. He's a good preacher, and this is what he said. He unrolls a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. All right, now follow the placement of the Spirit in the next several verses. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus, in Luke's portrayal of him, arrives on the scene and he says, hey, the Spirit is on me. And what does the Spirit do when the Spirit comes? The Spirit has set him apart to fulfill the Scriptures and to say that he's anointed him to pro proclaim good news to who? Everybody say it together. To who? The poor. Y'all got to talk back to me, okay? He proclaimed good news to who? Oh, man, y'all are doing so good. Uh, he sent to proclaim freedom for who? Okay. And to, to actually to, to set a, uh, bring sight to who? And to set the oppressed what? Yeah. So this is the, what it meant for the Spirit to come. The Spirit was very practical. And at the end of that, he says, I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the re reason for that was that Jesus was the answer to all the subsequent darkness that was, had devolved from the sinful choices of mankind. So every pit, part of brokenness that we see, every internal brokenness that we feel, uh, the, the strife that we experience in relationship, the tension that we feel even between races uh, and nations, all those things that we uh, experience, uh, adultery and crime and all those things, those are all downstream because of our sinful hearts. And Jesus came to come in and he began to address the real issues. And what we experience today is we've got some really embedded 
systemic issues that have worked in because of individual choices that have expanded into communal and corporate sinful practices. And that has become embedded in our life. And Jesus came to address all those issues. He addressed it on the personal sin issue and he addresses it in all the consequences and effects of all the sinful choices. And so when the spirit comes, the spirit moves into the realm of the broken, the oppressed, the hurting, the poor. And so if the gospel is present, if the spirit is present, it doesn't mean you get warm, tingly feelings. It's not about laughing uncontrollably or falling on the floor. The spirit has come to enable us and empower us all to do what Moses was hoping would happen and what Jesus now has come to embody. Well, when that happened with Jesus, watch what happens. All the people heard him talk about this, and they were amazed, and they said to each other, what words these are. And then this is what happens. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. If you drop down in chapter 4, right after he proclaims this, he goes out and he begins to heal people. He casts demons out, uh, exercises demons out of demon-possessed people. Uh, and when people saw this, they were like, okay, he wasn't just talking about things. He comes with authority, and he comes with power. And so from chapter 4 all the way to up to chapter 9, we get this zeroing in, this focusing of who Jesus is, that Jesus is God who has come as the rightful and righteous king to address sin on all its levels and to extend an invitation into the kingdom of God through power and authority. Luke presents Jesus as a king. And in doing so, he, he introduces this great reversal that the, the, the basically the, the people that were, you thought were in frequently in Luke's gospel are the outsiders. And the outsiders become insiders. The other thing he does is he begins to level things. He, he takes the ones that are of high stature and he lowers them. And the people that are in lower stature, he raises them. And so what you see from chapter 4 to chapter 9 is Luke telling the story of what the power and authority looks like when the Spirit is on Jesus. But when we get to chapter 9, the whole story turns. And what it begins to move to is what's called the travel narrative. This is the narrative that takes us to cross. There's a, there's a change to what Luke tries to do. He's shoring up Jesus' identity and purpose. And when we get to chapter 9, as he goes to the cross, we begin to see that what Christ does is exactly what happened with Moses in the Old Testament. He begins to take his spirit and he begins to place it on others for the purpose of becoming agents of the very same message and agents of that very same redemption. You saw it first in Luke chapter 9 with the 12. We frequently call them the disciples, but there were a lot more disciples than just the 12. But the 12 received this in chapter 9 verse 1. He gave them what? The same thing he had in chapter 4 verse 36, power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So you see this, right? This is an extension and it's an expansion of the spirit of God and the kingdom of God that comes primarily not just through one, but as God begins to move in the lives of others. So when we get to chapter 10, when we get to chapter 10, this is where we started. I know it was a long kind of detour, but that sets up this situation that after the Lord appointed 72 others. So what do we have? We have what happened back in the Numbers chapter 11, we have the Spirit coming on Jesus, expanding to the 12, now moving out to the 72. And in Luke's telling of the tale, what he's trying to do is he's trying to take two installments because Luke wrote the gospel and then he wrote what other book, class, Bible nerds? Anybody know what other book he wrote? Acts. He wrote the book of Acts. And so there are two installments, kind of bookends of the story. And if you follow the story of Acts, what Jesus is doing is he's moving the Spirit onto individuals. And here's why that's important to us. Because by the time you get to Luke's telling of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, watch what happens. The Spirit comes. It falls on everybody that were the disciples of Jesus. And in the last days, this was the quote from Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. 
Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. And in those days, what will they do? Prophesy. So you, you see the common thread, don't you? Now, who was included in this? Well, he had expanded. Everyone is included. By the time you get to Acts chapter 2, who's empowered? Everyone's empowered. By the time you get to Acts chapter 2, who's invited? Everyone's invited. And you see this play out in really practical terms. If you're wondering what I mean by that, what you see by the time you get to the New Testament following Pentecost uh, is something that Luke actually introduced in his telling the Jesus story. Remember that in, out, up, down, balancing and uh, reversal uh, process that uh, I mentioned earlier? Well, frequently, people that were held at arm's length, lepers, people that were of ill repute, they were on the outside, but through Jesus Christ, they're brought into the family and they're empowered to go to proclaim the message. Uh, it happens where God flips the power stru structures. He takes people that are poor and he confronts the rich and he raises up and elevates them. And one of the most pronounced ways you see it is the way that Luke even talks about women. Matter of fact, if you look at Luke's story, uh, Luke's telling the gospel, 40% of the named individuals in Luke's gospel are women. And that was a big deal in Greco-Roman society. They, uh, for them to be zeroed in on that way. I mean, Luke started out in Luke chapter 1, and who was the first one to hear about Jesus? In Luke chapter 1, this is the Christmas story, is Mary. Mary is the first one to receive the news about Jesus and to put faith in Jesus. And from that, we see Jesus engaging with all kinds of women. And you get this beautiful story where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And that's kind of lost on us. But what that actually meant was that she was actually a disciple of Jesus. She was a learner of Jesus. And why do you learn? Why are you a disciple? You, we know this about discipleship. What's the purpose of discipleship? It's not information. It's equipping. Uh, is to equip you for, to actually be able to perform, to do what God's called you to do, to be able to teach the same thing. And so we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. You see where at the end of Luke's gospel, where uh, the, the feet, first people at the tomb were the women, Mary and Mary Magdalene and the others, they were at the tomb. And they are the first ones to carry the gospel message, the resurrection of Jesus back to the men. And you see it, don't you? You see so many of these stories where Luke is elevating these women just like he elevated people on the fringes of society. People that within society's view were lower, he exalted, he raised them up because he was playing the reversal game. Because when the Spirit comes, the Spirit is enabling and empowering and equipping everyone. And you follow it out. You can see it in the New Testament. You can see it play out in the churches. By the time you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you've got men and women prophesying uh, in the church. You've got co-workers of Paul that are women. In Romans chapter 16, at the end of the book, he, uh, there's a laundry list of names. People like Phoebe, who was a deacon or minister at the church of Synchria. Uh, you've got Junia, who was great among the apostles. You've got Priscilla, who helped to equip Apollos. You, you see this actually play out. What happened, what was set up way back when through the uh, arrival of the Spirit is now producing. And what this means for us is that if you're in here today, that everyone is included. This is not about who's on staff. This is not about who the pastor is. This is the beauty of what we believe about the gospel, that with the arrival of the Spirit, everyone is included. That means that when you come to faith in Christ, as Titus 3.5 says, that it's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but it's according to his mercy, to the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that when you come into contact with the truth of the gospel, the real gospel, that the Spirit rests on you and he empowers you to do what he's called you to do and he leaves and deposits within you a gift that's specific to you for the building up of the church and the extension of the kingdom of God. So it's important that in the moment in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, that these 72, they begin to represent this bigger story of the extension of the kingdom of God. Now, if everyone's included and everyone's empowered and if everyone's invited, then what dictates 
um, who's in and who's out. Well, in Luke's mindset, it's no longer your earthly status. It's about call and response. Will you hear the call of God and will you respond to the call of God? And here's how that's painted. It's painted in the area of what we're going to call provision. Provision. You see this in Luke chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. This is what happens to the 72. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out <clears throat> like lambs among wolves. Now, we talked about those two elements at the end of last week's sermon. But watch this. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. So this is the call. Okay, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. They're going down the road. And what, what's really uh, telling the tale of whether or not they are actually going to become and receive the message of Jesus? Well, he's putting it on the line for them. He's saying this gets very real in the area of your provision. He's asking them. He's saying, hey, listen, when you're going out, you're going to have to leave what's comfortable for you this facade of certainty that you're in, it's going to push you out where you're going to have to, you're going to actually have to um, uh, demonstrate this thing that we like to call faith. I mean, think about faith for a second. Faith is saying to God, God, I believe you. I, I, I trust you. This is about saying to God, like I, when you have these internal questions, well, this doesn't add up. I, 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 this is going to cost me to go out. I, I don't know if it all comes out on the balance sheet right. Uh, when I count it all up, I, it doesn't seem to make a lot of earthly sense because I got all these responsibilities. But what we've learned last week and this week is Jesus defines the terms and he puts us on the edge to say that this is the real gospel. The real gospel is, are you willing to take a step of faith? Are you willing to trust in the faithfulness of God? And the best way to do that for Jesus was to take everything else away and say, I don't even want you to take a, a change of clothes. I don't want you to pack a bag. I don't want you to take your purse. Now, some of y'all with your purses and your bags and your clothes, you're like, I can't imagine leaving all that behind. That's everything I need is in there, which was exactly the point. What does it mean that Jesus is enough for you? And what we learn for this is that the provision is not always on the front end, that the provision is actually after obedience. That provision actually comes as part of the journey with Jesus, not before. And so, matter of fact, when you get into Luke's gospel later on, Jesus refers back to this with the disciples. He actually says, he, he probes him on this because he's getting close to the cross at this point. And he asks the disciples in Luke twenty-two thirty-five. he says, when I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? And what was their response? Nothing. We lacked nothing. Why did they lack nothing? It's because when you come to him with nothing, he becomes everything. And this is what it means to walk in the power of the gospel. It's we don't need a truncated gospel. We don't need a conflated gospel. We certainly don't need a cultural gospel. What do we need? We need a gospel that says that Jesus is enough. I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to shape my life around the way of Jesus. I'm going to approach my life as if Jesus was living his life through me. I'm going to say, do my words and my thoughts match his words and thoughts? Do my actions, do the, the ways that I approach things, do they match Jesus' way of approaching things? Because when we think of faith, so oftentimes we think of it as just like stepping off the stage and hoping that there's something on the bottom of that that's going to keep me from falling. But when we look at faith biblically, what we're learning is that faith is not just blind trust. It's actually leaning in with allegiance. When you hear the word faith, what I want you to hear is I want you to hear the word allegiance. That Jesus came in power and authority as a king. And so what he's calling us for is an allegiance to him and nothing else. No other earthly movements, no other earthly figures, but Jesus and Jesus alone. New Testament scholar Matthew Bates, he, 
has a quote that I really like about this, and he, he says it this way. He says, the key point is that true pistis, which is the Greek word for faith, is not an irrational launching into the void, but a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. That means that when it doesn't add up, when you can't take anything with you, you look at Jesus and you make the decision, I am allied with Jesus. I'm going with Jesus. It may not make no earthly sense. It may not make any sense to all my friends, to any of my other relationships, but I'm going with Jesus. And most of us, we don't think of faith that way. We think of faith as just, okay, well, I'm gonna trust God for that. It's a quick prayer. Uh, even salvation itself is, well, you, you, here, let me, let me lead you in the sinner's prayer and all that kind of stuff. But that's not what Luke was trying to present. That's not what Jesus was trying to present. He was talking, he was presenting Jesus to us as the rightful king. And rightful kings deserve allegiance. And you see this play out a lot of times, this, this concept of faith. Uh, matter of fact, uh, if you look in some other contexts around the times in which this was written, as a matter of fact, there was a, a letter that's recorded in uh, 1 Maccabees uh, in chapter 10. Uh, this is not in our Bible, but this gives us a, a historical representation of this very word and concept. And I thought it was pretty telling because what it introduces is not faith as blind trust, but as allegiance. This letter records this guy named Demetrius, a King Demetrius, and King Demetrius was worried because King Alexander, Caesar Alexander, they were worried that what he was about to do was to kind of subvert this alliance and this friendship that they had with the Jews. And so he sent a letter to the Jews, and it's recorded in 1 Maccabees, and this idea comes up, King Demetrius to the nation of Jews. This is the letter, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. Now continue still to keep faith with us. It's the same Greek word. And we will repay you with good for what you do for us. Now, when you hear this in the context, this is one example of a hundred different examples. When they thought of faith, they didn't just think of some kind of spiritual, ethereal, mystical thing. They said that if you are going to keep faith with someone, you are going to remain loyal. You are gonna keep allegiance to that person. In this case, it was King Demetrius. For us, it's King Jesus. We are loyal, we have allegiance to Jesus. And what happens is, is when you take everything else away, you find out where your allegiances are. You see, everybody can take faith in Jesus when the air's set right, when the parking lot's clear, when the music's right, that's what I like. But when everything else gets taken away, when, when it seems like the world around you is shaken and chaotic, the question comes to us, is Jesus truly the center of your faith? Or there are other things that have come in and subverted. Do you have a truncated gospel? Do you have a conflated gospel? Do you have a cultural gospel? Or do you have the good news that Jesus is the rightful king of all creation? And when, when we get that, there's embedded within that this abiding humility. One of the things we've been praying over the course of the month is that God would give all of our churches a heart of humility. And what happens when you come into situations where you don't have anything? Well, it's, it's really humbling. Uh, we don't like to do that uh, in our culture very much. Um, we honor people that uh, have a lot, and a lot of times if you don't have a lot, you're in a place of dishonor. Uh, and a lot of times the church is not the place for people that are dishonorable. And it's simply not because of any other fact is they don't feel comfortable because they don't have what you have. And as the, as the centuries have gone on with faith, you, you see this, that oftentimes the, uh, we become very suburban in our faith. We begin to distance ourselves with the pain and the suffering, the poor and the oppressed. And we become arrogant. We become puffed up. But what happens when Jesus sends you out and he says, I don't want you to have anything. I don't want you to come and say, well, I got a little money I can throw at it. I, I, I've come and I've got it all figured out and so come and let me serve a little bit. Let me help a little bit. Now he's saying, I want you to go and I want you to be the needy one. 
I want you to go in situations where you don't have anything. And what did he do? He leveled the playing field. And so what they came in, it's like what um, Peter, James, and John, those, those guys in Acts, you see them when they see the beggar uh, by the gate. And they come in and he's asking for alms. He's asking for money. You remember what they said? They said, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I want to give it to you. And so they didn't come at, like they had everything. They came where they only had Jesus. And what did they bear? What do we bear when we come in, not as the people that have it figured out, and we look down our noses at the people that have not, or have their backs against the wall? We come in in a humble position. I think it's so brilliant the way that Jesus did this. He embedded within the journey, within the mission, the humility that it would take to actually produce the change. Change in us, and then change through us. And the change that he was working through us was the change of peace. That's what you see in Luke chapter 10, verse 5. This is what they were proclaiming and doing. When they said there, when they entered a house, you're going to see this repeat three times. We're going to cover the first two this week, get into the third one next week. They're going to start the same way. When you enter the house, he's going to say, when you enter a town and they welcome you. Then he's going to say, when you enter a town and they don't welcome you. We're going to take the first two this week. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it'll return to you. And I want you to stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. Uh, that last part is actually, uh, most people think that what that means is they, they weren't looking for a better deal, better accommodations, better food. Because that's the way we think, right? Well, hey, if I got two offers, which one's going to be the most comfortable? What Jesus is saying, listen, when you go in some place, you're not looking for the place that's the most comfortable and that provides you the best benefits and return on your effort. You go to where the hospitality is and where God has opened the door. And when you go in humility, empowered by the Spirit, everyone's included, everyone's going, what happens? Well, you come in and you become ministers of peace. Now, this is telling because in a Jewish context, everything was consumed in this idea of shalom or peace. You might have heard the word shalom before. Uh, you see it pop up continually. Now, shalom can mean like an internal peace, uh, peace between me and God personally of how you're doing. Uh, but you also see this uh, on, a, on a cultural or a national level. And you see it through Jesus on a cosmic level. That the shalom, if you think about peace, we often think about just absence of conflict, right? Uh, like, oh, are you in a peacetime or wartime? Well, it's hard to tell anymore uh, within our world whether we are or we're not. I don't even know how you gauge that. But uh, it's not just the absence of conflict. It's actually bringing things back to completion. And in a cosmic sense, what the gospel is rooted in is the story of the entire cosmos being broken by sin, God coming in, calling Abraham uh, to produce a people uh, called by God's name to extend the kingdom. Jesus comes on the scene. We just follow that train of thought out. But it really starts with what God was doing to bring everything back to wholeness. You might remember in Isaiah chapter 9, it's a passage that we read at Christmas all the time. You remember this. We're going to go back to Christmas. It's getting close to Easter, but we're going back in time a little bit. Remember this famous passage? For uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So way back, 600 years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet speaks about the coming king, the Messiah. And when he arrives on the scene, what's he going to do? It's going to come as a baby. He's going to be the mighty God. He's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to be the prince of peace. And of the greatness of his kingdom, his government, his peace, there will be no end. That means that the expansion and the extension of his kingdom, what does it look like when God is king? and all the fullness of his goodness and holiness and graciousness, it's a good place to live. I mean, so many of us, we're trying to find a good place to live on earth, right? I mean, you're looking on Zillow and you're looking for the house, you're looking for the neighborhood, you're looking for the place that will, is a good place to live. Well, there is no better place to live than in the kingdom of God to actually live underneath his rule in the rain. And what does that look like? It looks like wholeness. It looks like completeness. 
It looks like the absence of pain and tension. And so when Jesus actually fulfills this, in Luke chapter 2, we're going back to Luke, what, what was the first announcement? The first announcement when Jesus arrived, glory to God in the highest of heaven on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That people can experience the peace of God, the wholeness of God. And so when we go into situations, much like the 72, much like the 12, now the Spirit's on us to go into places and to be prophets of peace, to come in and prophesy peace, to come and extend peace. And in order for that to happen, what does that actually look like? It doesn't look like rhetoric. It doesn't look like false promises. It doesn't look like sermons. It, it becomes very personal and very practical. And this is how this passage ends. In Luke chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, it says that when you enter a town and you're welcomed, eat what is offered to you. That's the rite of hospitality. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. He tells them to do two things. I want you to go and I, I want you to take this peace. What does it look like? It looks like healing the sick. Well, first it looks like building a relationship, table fellowship, eating with someone, uh, to come eye level, face to face with a person that's hurting, to move out of your comfort zone into a place of discomfort where you are not the one looking down, but you're looking level with someone. You're eye to eye with someone. And when you do that, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to bring the kingdom to bear. What does that look like? Well, it, it, he wasn't, they weren't going door to door with a gospel track. They were coming in and they were saying, what's broken here? What is broken here? Because I've got a God that has all power in creation that wants to bring wholeness. He wants to correct this. He wants to come in and he wants to move in because he's a good king. And so it becomes very personal, face to face. It becomes very practical. In this case, it looked like my, my son that's having seizures, his seizures stop. Here, where we don't have enough money to provide food for us all to eat, we're giving it all to you. Where we're gonna pray that the Lord is going to provide for you and we're gonna find a way to help you. This is very personal, this is very practical. And I think the church going into the next 10 years is going to have to recapture this idea of what it would actually look like for us to practically and prophetically and personally be prophets of peace, to move into difficult places. It's not going to be that we're gonna get online and get the masses here. It's not gonna be that we're gonna open up the doors and when are we gonna get back to normal, you know, whatever world that is. This is gonna be how do we mobilize to go in the places and do the things that Jesus has called us to do in the power of his spirit. So three simple things he's calling us to do. He's calling us to usher in the kingdom, to bring it in, to move it in to Jonesboro, to move it into neighborhoods, to move it into schools, to move it into lost people's lives, into homes. He's calling us not only to do that, but he's calling us to announce the kingdom, this idea that we can just live positive lives with ever, ever associating it with Jesus and who he is is a misnomer. It doesn't work. Like we, we have to have both. We become people that come and usher it in and we come and announce and we talk about who Jesus is and the greatness of who he is. And then ultimately, what do we do? We invite other people into the kingdom. We invite them in. We bring them in. Because isn't that what he called us to do? I mean, that's what happened in verse 9. He says, when you enter a town and you're welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near to you. What would it look like for us to embrace that, to, to throw away this truncated idea of the gospel, this conflation of a gospel that's some kind of weird mutant thing that we've associated with all things American and all things political, we push it to the side and we say, no, it's Jesus. We're gonna follow Jesus. What does it look like for us to say, it's not enough for me to be a cultural follower of Jesus, to adopt a cultural gospel, but what does it look like for me to actually embrace who Jesus really is? Who is Jesus? What was his mission? How did he work? 
and we begin to emulate that and follow him with faith that is allegiance, that is intrinsically humbling for us. And my prayer is that we will become that type of people, that we will be willing to look at our embedded theologies and become a lot more deliberate about who we are and evaluate ourselves and ask God to change us, which is what we've been doing with Saturate this month. And so as we finish up, what I want to do is I want to ask us to pray, much like we did last week. I'm going to put three prayer prompts up here, and they're going to stay up there for 45 seconds each. And I want you to pray this. You can just read them silently to yourself. Uh, You may want to kneel at the front if that's your posture or kneel where you are. You may just want to bow your head, silently pray these things. But let's do this together, and let's ask the Lord to shape us into the type of people that are called by his name, to be prophets of peace, to usher in the kingdom of God, to announce it, and to invite other people in. So let's do that now. Let's assume a posture of prayer.